Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, 1 Samuel chapter 8 continued. Well, we completed our detour last week. And uh, we return to 1 Samuel chapter 8 today. And recall that the reason for that detour was to deal with the underlying substance of this series of four books consisting of Samuel and Kings. Now the substance I'm speaking about is the establishment of a human king to rule over Israel and the modern Bible academics view of it that these books have been corrupted over the centuries to the point that we really can't even take them at face value, let alone literally. Now the issue is that Bible critics of various disciplines point to the seeming contradiction that the Holy Scriptures are at once saying that the Lord approves of Israel having a king and the Lord does not approve of Israel having a king. And I told you that the choices that the most respected of modern Bible academics give us to explain this difficulty is either that God changed his mind from not wanting a king over his people to not only acceptance of a king, but also making a monarchy the center of his plans of redemption from this point forward, or that the holy texts were dishonestly redacted and substantially changed to bolster some Israelite king's status, possibly even King David's. Now, I reject both of those choices. And one of the several lessons I hope to achieve from our detour was to demonstrate to you was that the actual theological issue addressed in, Samuel's, in Samuel and Kings was not if there should be a king, but rather what kind of king should rule over Israel. And my goal was not to establish a new doctrine, but rather to demonstrate that all one has to do to, is accept the rather typical way that such deep mysteries are presented to us in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then it all becomes clear for us. And that mystery is based on the God principle of duality. Whereby a spiritual ideal, in this case of a king, produces a physical shadow that is hazy and incomplete and oft times imperfect. The brilliant... German Bible scholar C.F. Kiel wrote the following thought uh, concerning the anointing of Saul as the first king of Israel and the error that his contemporary colleagues made in misjudging the entire issue of Israel and the monarchy. Now this excerpt, interestingly, was written in the mid-1800s in his exemplary commentary on the book of books of Samuel that has become today foundational reference material for the more recent commentaries. Here's what he says. 
He says, modern critics, however, have discovered irreconcilable contradictions in the history of Saul and Israel simply because instead of studying it for the purpose of fathoming the plan and purpose which lay at its foundation, they have entered upon the inquiry with a twofold assumption. First, that the government of Jehovah over Israel was only a subjective ideal of an Israelite nation without any objective reality. And two, that the human monarchy was irreconcilably opposed to the government of God. Governed by those axioms which are not derived from the scriptures but from the philosophical view of our modern times, the critics have found it impossible to explain the different accounts in any other way than by the purely external hypothesis that the history contained in this book has been compiled from two different sources in one of which the establishment of the earthly monarchy was treated as a violation of the supremacy of God, while the other took a more favorable view. So what Professor Keel just said is that the modern Bible critics, even in his time, all right, of 150 years ago, have turned the Bible study process on its head Whereas the purpose of studying the Holy Scriptures ought to be discovering God's plans and purposes, the new way of academic thinking begins with the assumption that the Bible is inherently faulty. And thus, their purpose for Bible study is to try to uncover possible discrepancies like a team of lawyers pouring over a large contract or settlement agreement trying to either find or close some loopholes. Okay. Now, I agree wholeheartedly with Professor Keel, but also that there was a predictable, obvious, and traceable reason why Bible scholars, after the Enlightenment period that began about, oh, say, a hundred years before Keel's career as a Bible scholar, why they came to these assumptions and conclusions that they did. And the reason was that Christianity had recently adopted a new, and by the way, thoroughly Gentile, European, way of discovering truth in the scriptures. And it was by means of establishing systematic theological doctrines that in turn established a very rigid orthodoxy. And should anyone object to the terms of that particular denomination's Orthodoxy, well, then they were considered heretical or just ignorant. Well, that newly invented questionable means of establishing biblical truth meant that, in general, a single best answer to every complex question of Christian doctrine was required. And when each of those doctrines were connected and interlocked, a very high and impenetrable defensive wall was constructed to protect the agreed-to orthodoxy. Thus, when we examined but four of the scores of theological subjects encountered in the New Testament, we found numerous verses that dealt with each of those four subjects, but each verse tended to offer a little bit different perspective on the matter. (coughs) 
Okay. Modern systematic theology, which is the basis upon which essentially every Christian branch and denomination is built today, wants to accept the one best perspective in their view for each subject and then to relegate all the remaining perspectives to lesser relevance or maybe even outright irrelevance. So I demonstrated to you that such a systematic method was inherently flawed and was historically not the way that the ancient Hebrews, nor the Jews of Jesus' day, nor the first generation of the church ever viewed as the correct way to discover biblical truth. Therefore, I gave you an alternative method to study and perceive God's word, a word that I call the sheepfold. And simply it means that we ought to take each and every verse that examines a certain perspective on a theological subject and use them as though they were fence posts to mark an outer boundary of a sheepfold. Each verse, each post that offers a unique perspective of a theological issue is necessary. And generally, they're equal in weight and relevance. When we have examined and accepted as valid every biblical perspective available in the scriptures concerning each theological subject, we find then that there is formed an area of truth and harmony with God for a believer to operate safely within, rather than a wall of denominational orthodoxy of which about 3,000 of them exist today on which one can stand but on one side or the other for or against the sheepfold forms a very safe and secure area that a believer can wander around inside in full liberty where every corner of it every corner of it basks in the light of divine truth And also in full compliance with the principles and patterns of God's laws and commands at every spot we might choose to stand within it. But every fence post that is removed weakens the structure by denying a recorded scriptural truth. Crossing over that sheepfold and trying to operate outside of it is dangerous. Because outside of it is error. What is outside of it has been created by man-made philosophies and doctrines. The sheepfold method, as I call it, is how you have been taught in Torah class since the first days of our existence. Okay? And it's how we're going to proceed for as long as the Lord wills this ministry to be useful for His purposes. I strongly recommend that if you didn't hear the previous lesson that explains this process more thoroughly, that you listen to it on a CD or on our website, because I certainly don't have time to completely repeat it today. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read it all. First Samuel chapter 8, 305 in your complete Jewish Bible. 
When Shmuel, Samuel, grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. And his firstborn was named Yoel, his second was named Aviyah. And they were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons didn't follow his way of life. They turned off it to pursue riches so that they would take bribes to distort justice. And all the leaders of Israel gathered themselves together, approached Shmuel in Ramah, and said to him, Look, you've grown old. Your sons are not following your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us, like all the nations. Samuel was not pleased to hear them say, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to Adonai, and Adonai said to Samuel, Listen to the people. Do everything they say to you. For it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today. Abandoning me. Serving other gods. So do what they say. But give them a sober warning. Telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. Samuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people asking him for a king. And he said, here's the kind of rulings that your king will make. He will draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots. Be his horsemen, be bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He'll appoint them to serve him as officers in in charge of thousands and fifties, plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, making his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters. They'll be perfume makers, cooks, bakers. He'll expropriate your fields, vineyards, olive groves, the very best of them, and hand them over to his servants. He'll take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your male and female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and make them work for him. He'll take the 10% tax on your flocks, and you will become his servants. When that happens, you'll cry out on account of your king, whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai will not answer you. However, the people refused to listen to what Shmuel told them. And they said, no, we want a king over us, so that we can be like all the nations. With our king to judge us, and lead us, and fight our battles. Shmuel heard everything the people said, and repeated them for Adonai to hear. Adonai said to Samuel, do what they ask. Set up a king for them. So Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you return to his city. The first half dozen words of Samuel chapter 8 establish the setting for what's going to follow. And the setting is that many years had passed since the time when God defeated the Philistines who crossed into Israelite territory to attack the Hebrews as they met at Mitzpah to confess their sins and to repent. Well, the middle-aged Samuel, who had admonished Israel and judged Israel and led them in both civil and religious affairs, was now quite old. And in his old age, he appointed his two sons to be judges. This is not to say they were on par with Samuel, In fact, the place where they did their judging shows that they were of substantially lower status than their father. Verse 3 explains that not only were they of lower status, but they were also lesser men. They didn't follow Samuel's godly ways. Rather, more like Eli's sons, Hophni and Pincus, they were corrupt and they only sought personal gain. 
Their names completely belied their true character. Yoel means Yah is El, or God is the highest God. And Aviyah means my father is God. Now we see that they operated out of Beersheba, which is at the southernmost end of Israelite-controlled territory, a considerable distance from Samuel's family home in Ramah, and an equally considerable distance from the circuit that Samuel traveled throughout the heart of central Canaan to perform sacrificial rituals and to decide civil judicial cases cases at Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah. So was Samuel trying to establish a dynasty of sorts in naming his own sons as judges? In other words, was it Samuel's intent that upon his own death one of those sons would take over as a as a kind of national judge of Israel? Perhaps. But as in all human affairs there were likely a number of different considerations at play. First, since Samuel was a Levite, his sons were Levites by birthright. So, being judges by birthright, in the current rather odd arrangement by which Israel was now being governed by Samuel, who was a prophet, priest, and judge, that all might have seemed completely logical to Samuel. On the other hand, Samuel was behaving mostly as a shofet, a judge. Not as a Levite, whose job was to work at God's sanctuary. Well, second, since the two boys operated out of Beersheba, it would not have given them much visibility or public presence as Samuel envisioned one of them becoming his successor as the next national judge of Israel. On the other hand, where they were located was in an area that probably needed a judge because Samuel couldn't judge every area of Israel all by himself. Third, the people of Israel were likely comforted by the idea of Samuel setting up a visible line of succession so that when he died, Israel wouldn't be left leaderless. Because when a leadership vacuum existed, it usually wound up in clan warfare as the means to determine who would be the next ruler. On the other hand, Israel had been in the land now going on four centuries. A lot of times passed since they crossed over that Jordan. And they were more than ready to attain nation status, like their neighbors. And we're going to talk about that shortly. Now, verse 3, concerning the behavior of Yoel and Aviyah, is variously translated as turning off to pursue riches or turned aside after lucre and, 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 or were bent on gain or some such thing that seems to indicate that these sons of Samuel were more businessmen than administrators of Torah justice. But that's not really the case here. The Hebrew word that is being translated to describe their greedy attitude is besa. And besa means ill-gotten gain. So it's not only that they were more interested in money than judging, it's that they were inherently dishonest in their dealings. They bullied those who 
they had power over by requiring bribes, we're told. And they acquired their wealth in all sorts of unsavory ways. It seems as though even though Samuel personally witnessed what went on with Eli and his two worthless sons, who died as a result of God's curse on them, the same fate follows Samuel and his family. By the way, please note something. Whether Old or New Testaments, we must always remain balanced to understand that we are getting but the tiniest bits of information that these authors at God's inspiration found to be the most important and the most relevant because large blocks of time flies by and many details are simply never addressed. For instance, I don't know if it hits you, we've never read of Samuel having any love interest, let alone finding a wife. Yet out of the blue, we suddenly find he has two adult sons. Therefore, we have no choice but to assume that Samuel indeed did get married. At the same time, we must also not assume that these two sons represent Samuel's only children. As that would have been an unusually small family for that time. Barring some problem, Samuel probably had at least some number of daughters and could well have had other but younger sons. It's just that none of this was important to the story, so it wasn't recorded. An aged Samuel, along with two sons who had bad reputations as his likely successors, worried the tribal and the clan leaders. They didn't think Samuel had the ability to lead them anymore. Now, this, it was a, still a very dangerous world. Right? And frail leadership made them feel vulnerable. So in verse 4 we see that these tribal leaders formed a committee and they journeyed together to Ramah to make the concerns known to Samuel. And here in verse 5 we get those pivotal words that will have such immense impact on Israel's future. Now, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Shmuel was not only taken aback by this demand, but the passage says he was displeased. Now we have a lot to discuss here. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, due to the usual way this section of the Bible is taught, the sea change that is coming for Israel goes right over our heads. Let me see if I can frame this for you. What is... What if it was becoming clear that Americans in general wanted and were demanding to abolish our Constitution? To do away with Congress, the judiciary, and the executive branches of government and instead that we should become a communist state resembling World War II Russia. Is that not a radical change that would forever alter our lives in ways we really don't even have any ability to fully envision? Such a change would alter the balance of power in the world. It would destroy capitalism and personal wealth and liberty and generally move us into a new way of life that would be 180 degrees out of phase with how we are today. That's the stuff of nightmares. 
And that is also the enormity of what Israel was about to entertain. Don't even think that just because several leaders of Israel, who undoubtedly had personal agendas behind this, private reasons for their approaching Samuel with the request for Israel to have a king, that such a desire represented the view of all of Israel. While some wanted a king, others didn't. Okay. Since context is everything when studying the Bible, let's begin by understanding just what Israel was at this point in history. Now, while we're going to see some reference in Scripture to these Israelites as a, as a nation, that was merely a common way of speaking and not technically true, not even for that time. Rather, the word nation, by this point in history, had become a term that referred to Gentile nations. Okay. The way the judges of Israel operated throughout this era of the judges, it's almost 400 years old, is indicative of the reality that the 12 tribes were fractured, not a union that formed an entity called Israel. Each shofet, each judge, invariably dealt with the troubles of one tribe, his own. Not all twelve. Even Samuel had influence mostly over the tribes who occupied central Canaan and held a lot less sway over those to the far north and those to the south. I've used the term loose confederacy to describe the organization of Israel. But the truth is that emphasis ought to be a lot more on loose than confederacy. Let me say this in another way. There was no such country, there was no such place called Israel in Samuel's era. They, there were many sovereign Gentile countries in existence that surrounded them, but Israel wasn't considered as among them. Rather, they were just a huge conglomeration of independent families and clans that recognized a common ancestor in Jacob and that also recognized a common God served by a common priesthood. In terms of organization and cohesion, Israel had gone backwards over the past four centuries. The situation was quite different before the era of the judges, because before then, Israel was an identifiable and fairly unified group of people. Out in the wilderness, they were closer to a nation than at any other point in their history, up to the point of the kings. They had a respected leader over all the tribes in Moses. They had a functioning governmental system. They had a God-appointed successor for Moses in Joshua that allowed for a relatively seamless transition of power. The twelve tribes lived together. They marched together. They worshipped together. They fought enemies together. They shared resources and hardships together during their 40 years out in the wilderness. When Moses died and Joshua led them over the Jordan, the splintering 
of the three million Hebrew refugees from Egypt had already begun. Two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, decided that they didn't want to enter into the promised land. And about half of the clans that formed the tribe of Manasseh felt the same way. So even though they did send a contingency of troops to fight alongside their tribal brothers who entered into Canaan, the split was visible. It was irreconcilable. After the land of Canaan was sufficiently brought under Israel's control and then Joshua died, the sense of national unity with a common goal, inheriting the the land that God promised to Abraham, that it existed for around 80 years or so, it all evaporated pretty rapidly. After that time, no friend or foe outside of the land of Canaan would have spoken of those 12 tribes as Israel, as though they were one unified group of people. Rather, they would have been spoken of dealing with individual clans and tribes who were Israelites, but at the same time no longer had thoughts of a centralized loyalty or authority. Now as Westerners, this is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it's important that we do. See, tribalism is such a different animal than any form of governance or societal organization that the modern West knows or understands. Even though our evening news is filled with tribal conflicts throughout the Middle and Far East, we have a hard time picturing what an extremely different way of life that tribalism is and how it embodies a mindset that's just light years apart from ours. But let me see if perhaps I can draw you a mental picture of it that might help you to both grasp why the concept of Israel having a king was so radical for them and at the same time expose why it is that a remote corner of our world today is so prominent in our news and it leaves us scratching our heads to even try to understand it. And that corner of the world is Pakistan. Now I'm just choosing Pakistan as an illustration because it makes a truly wonderful and timely analogy to the situation of the people of Israel at the time of Samuel. And let me begin by saying that there was no universally accepted Israeli government at the time of Samuel and that's more or less the situation with Pakistan today even though we hear of a so-called Pakistani government all the time. Depending on who you talk to, Pakistan either does or does not even have a functioning central government today. The West continues to pretend that Pakistan actually has a government that speaks for its citizens, but nothing could be further from reality. The central government only exists for so long as some of the more powerful tribes of Pakistan are given special privileges and autonomy. Other of the tribes are fighting to control to control this self-styled so-called government of Pakistan while others are just ignoring it. 
And still others are battling the very concept of a central government as an affront to Islam. Since Islam is rooted in tribalism and not in monarchy or democracy, perhaps the most important characteristic of a typical earthly nation for it to be recognized by other nations as being sovereign and being a unified country is a national army. There is a Pakistani national army, but its loyalties are hopelessly split among this barely operating central government and and their own clan and their particular sect of Islam. Every action at every level requires negotiation. Loyalties form, disintegrate, reform based on every given situation. Groups who are literally fighting in the streets today against one another can find themselves fighting shoulder to shoulder tomorrow only to go back to fighting one another a few days later. In the end, there's the Pakistani government entity that the Western governments talk to, but they have very limited power. Then there's the Pushtan tribe of 25 million who wield a huge army of militants who also generally have no interest in a central government unless they're it. Then there's the Taliban, who is really a group of radical Sunni Muslims who absolutely do not want a central government unless it's them. They would just as soon wipe out the current government, wipe out the other non-Sunni tribes, the clans of Pakistan, as well as the nations of Israel, India, the USA, any other Muslim-resistant nation. Confusion? You bet. But this kind of confusion and instability is the norm. And it's actually a very comfortable state of affairs for tribalism. Because Pakistan is at its heart tribal. Again, this was the situation of the tribes and clans of Samuel's era that were loosely called Israel. A large group of Israelites were satisfied with the current arrangement and yet others longed for a national structure that they felt would bring them more prosperity, stability, and security. These are those who wanted a king like their neighbors. Monarchies inherently diminish tribalism. So taking that picture along with us now of what Israel amounted to at this time, the tribal leaders who came to Samuel must have wielded a lot of influence among at least some of the more important tribes where Samuel just would have sent them packing. But Samuel knew they were serious and determined and that the form of leadership of the tribes of Israel was going to change radically one way or another. Now what bothered Samuel was threefold. First, 
These men were insinuating that Samuel could no longer handle his duties to lead Israel. And so he felt rejected after all these years of serving his fellow Hebrews and putting them before himself. And second, these men didn't want Samuel's sons to lead them. So that meant Samuel's family's influence would end upon his death. And third, these leaders wanted to adopt a whole new form of government that used their heathen neighbors as its model. As God's prophet, this this really troubled Samuel. Now let there be no doubt. What these Israelite tribal leaders had in mind was a monarchy that looked identical to all the other monarchies in existence. Verse 5 says, Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations nations is not a redundant or throwaway phrase. Like all the nations is the key part of that phrase. It's the part that the Bible critics who speak of a supposed scriptural contradiction in Samuel and Kings refuse to see for what it actually is. A description of the kind of king that the confused and corrupted Israelite people wanted. But it's not the ideal type of king that God wants or will eventually install first over Israel, then over all true believers, and eventually over all mankind who remain after Armageddon. A good question for us might be, why did these Israelite leaders demand a king, something they'd never had? instead of just a new judge to replace Samuel. Why not just ask for a younger version of Samuel? Well, after all things had gone quite well since Samuel had judged Israel, why did they want a different system? I mean, their major enemies had been held at bay. Israel was generally prosperous. So what was it that they felt was missing? God had uniquely called Israel to be his special and set-apart people. God was to be their spiritual king, judge, lawgiver, protector, sustainer, deliverer, and more. Everything that Israel needed, Jehovah was prepared to provide. The other nations, by definition all Gentile nations didn't have this advantage. They were on their own. They reaped whatever their human hands sowed. But now a goodly portion of God's own people were ready to exchange perfect divine glory for status in the eyes of the world as defined by the world. What status did these Israelite leaders seek that they didn't currently have? Nation status. The world had defined a nation. And it was an admired thing. It consisted primarily of a tract of land, a capital city, a king to rule over all of his subjects, a bevy of minions to serve him, 
and a standing, uniformed national army to project the king's power, whether it be upon his enemies or upon a portion of his own citizenry who might dare or be reluctant to bow down to all of his demands. These Israelite leaders who approached Samuel with their own demands wanted to submit to the world's definition of a nation. They were very willing to give up a far higher and incomparable calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a status that was conferred upon them by Jehovah. Identity with the world became more important than identification as the chosen people of God. Now, I've beat you up sufficiently on this issue in the last few weeks not to again spend time drawing the parallels between Samuel's Israel and modern-day Christianity. But the parallel is appropriate. And until we each, as followers of Messiah, take courageous action in our own lives and families to not follow the herd all we have to do to know the result of adopting pagan practices into our worship and into our observances and to lusting after the ways of and pleasures of our secular world is to read Israel's history in the Bible enough said but there is one other reason that Israel wanted a king it was natural for humans to eventually desire a single human person to rule over them and hopefully care for them. God created mankind to want a king. Of course, that king was to be the Lord and the Lord alone. Men of every age, at every level, eventually seek to exceed the divinely appointed boundaries, limits, and God principles that have been set down for us. That is our major downfall. And it won't end really until a new heaven and earth replaces the present one. We read that even during the thousand year reign of Messiah, our King Yeshua will have to rule with an iron rod. That means unbending leadership that will not tolerate even the slightest trespass. And this is because men will still be flawed men, complete with evil inclinations. Even with the very presence of God in the flesh before us, and the horrors of Armageddon just behind us, and starting with a new world population of nothing but Worshippers of the God of Israel. Israel's demand for a king like their neighbors was merely a culmination of a long history and series of events and transitions that proved that even followers of God would succumb to our own human natures. Even followers of God would in time prefer our own human aspirations to God's provisions. But let me end today's lesson with this question. Should Samuel have even been surprised 
by this demand for a king? Should he have felt that it was terribly wrong? Did he not know that in fact Moses said this would happen? And that in fact it was going to be permitted by God? Turn your Bibles, we'll close out today, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. 1 7, 17. And that's page uh, 216. We're going to read verses 14 through 20. When you have entered the land Adonai your God is giving you, have taken possession of it and are living there, you may say, I want to have a king over me, like all the other nations around me. Hmm. In that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He will be one of your kinsmen, this king you appoint over you. You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back there again. Likewise, he is not to acquire many wives for himself so that his heart will not turn away. And he is not to acquire excessive quantities of silver and gold. When he has come to occupy the throne of his kingdom, he is to write a copy of this Torah for himself in a scroll from the one that the priests and the Levites use. It is to remain with him. He's to read it every day as long as he lives so that he will learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of this Torah and these laws and obey them so that he will not think he is better than his kinsmen so that he will not turn aside either to the right or the left from Adonai's commandments. In this way, he will prolong his own reign and that of his children in Israel.